All right, Grove, we are in week four of this series that, that, I mean, God has been doing some good things. I've been talking with you and I'm hearing God think, God do good things through this series. And it's in the book of Ephesians. It's called A New Humanity. And in it, what we find God doing is he's taking a lost, broken, sinful humanity and he's drawing out of it a new society. And this new society has been united to the love of God in Christ Jesus. And because of what God has done, we have freedom. We're alive. We have this joy and this peace that is beyond our understanding. And they're not just words. I mean, this is things that are really happening to God's people. And today... Through all the good things that God has done for the last three weeks, we come to the heights of what God does, what God is doing, and what God one day will do in this world. The sermon today is about cosmic renewal. And we've been looking really at verses 3 through 14. And what we keep hearing is there is a divine plan that's happening. There's a plan that's been put in place and it's being carried out and it's reaching its end. It's reaching its goal. It's reaching its telos. And these verses, verses 3 through 14, it's one long sentence in the Greek. It's 202 words. And as Paul is describing all of the things that God does, he can't help but be in absolute praise for it. And so if you want to know the greatness of God, Paul is writing of it right here. However, there's a way to hear everything that God has done and it not do anything to you. So what we also see is that the Holy Spirit takes all of these beautiful things that God has done and makes it real for you, seals these truths for you, and then you come alive to it all. And it's my honor to be able to walk through this with you guys. And I, and I pray that God would reveal to you the beauty of these truths. So we're in verses 3 through 14. Our focus today is verses 9 through 11, but we're going to read all of them. And there'll be Q&A after the sermon. There should be a number on the screen, and you can text your questions in as they come along. So God's word to us from Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now this first word, this first phrase, this phrase we're looking at, a plan for the fullness of time in our first point. A plan for the fullness of time means, in the Greek, it means the sum of all things. It means everything is being gathered together and united under something, and it's under the headship of Christ. And when all things have been gathered together and united to him, it means that cosmic renewal starts pouring out into our world. It's like God has this plan of where we're going. And every single thing that happens in your life is the unfolding of this plan that will lead to this purpose that we are looking forward to coming. Christ, it's like he's veiled. And then he pulls the veil back. And when he does, all things have been gathered up to him and united to him. And when that happens, all things, absolutely all of it, are made new. Today, you know, it was said like 20, 30 years ago that we were becoming more and more atheistic and that this would continue to happen. Only what we're finding now is that more and more people are becoming spiritual, less atheistic and more spiritual. There's a, there's a bit that a comedian, John Holmes, does. And it kind of captures a little bit of our verses. I want to read it to you. Um, it's funny. He's a comedian. So if you don't laugh, then, well, maybe I've ruined it. But here you go. John Holmes. He says, some people think God created the universe. Some think nothing created the universe, which is the funniest guess. And the nothing people make fun of the God people. And they say God doesn't exist. I'm like, okay, maybe. But you know what definitely doesn't exist? Nothing. That's the defining characteristic of nothing, is that it doesn't exist. So what are we talking about here, he says. Either you think it's God, something you can't see, touch, taste, photograph, and science can't prove, or you think it's nothing, something you can't see, touch, taste, photograph, and science can't prove. But I think we can all agree, if nothing spontaneously erupts into everything, that's a pretty expletive magical nothing. And the nothing people say, what happens when you die? You ask them and they tell you nothing. You go back into nothing. And he says, you mean you merge back to your creator? That's heaven. And then he leaves us with another expletive. Um, so what he's just done here is he's captured a little bit of the meaning of our verses when he says you merge back with your creator. Now, it's not exactly happening that way. To you, it doesn't mean we become God. It means we become united to the God that we lost. And so the question first we ask is what happens to you when you become united back to Christ as you've always been meant to be? C.S. Lewis helps us with this. C.S. Lewis isn't a comedian. He takes things a bit seriously. And he says this. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. And what he's getting at is that 
there's a beauty, a majesty, and a splendor that you one day will possess. And you are moving now towards that. That's the plan. That's the goal for you. That's the perfection for you. And if you had seen, or if right now you see the version of you that you one day will be, you would be tempted to bow down to this being that seems angelic or maybe even this manifestation of God, but you would be mistaken in that. And the point is that you have no idea how beautiful, how wonderful, how splendid that you will be when you become who you've been meant to be. And the way that happens is being fully united to Christ. And it's not just what happens to you. It's what happens to all of us who call on his name in all things. When all things become united to him, we walk into a world of absolute flourishing, absolute perfection, absolute beauty, absolute this place that I don't even have the words to describe how amazing it is because we're not supposed to have the words. It's like a cosmic party. Heaven and earth kiss. And they become consummated as one. And then Christ is crowned as the king. And when that happens, the blind will see. The deaf will hear. The mute will sing. The lame will dance. And the poor will be blessed with every, the riches of every spiritual blessing that there is in the heavenly places. And all of us who have been imprisoned by our sin and our guilt and our shame will be set free. And all of us who are anxious will have peace. And all of us who have sorrow will have joy. And we will walk into a world that has been painted with the beauty of heaven. And the sky in it will be drawn colors that we have never seen. And we will look at it and we will say, I've never seen this before, but somehow I always knew that I was made for this world. And there will be a funeral there. And it will be the funeral of death. Death will be dead and it will be gone. And all of those who have gone before you, you will celebrate with and you will dine with forever in paradise. And all of those who come after you, you will have this massive celebration with forever. Tears will be wiped away. And you will experience never-ending, pure, intoxicating joy. And that means something. It means that every, if God has a plan and that's the end goal, then it means if God has a plan and that's the end goal, then everything that is happening in your life is happening for a purpose and for a reason, though you might not understand it. All suffering, all pain, all loss that you were experiencing, it's part of this divine plan that's carrying you to this world that you are made for and to the God that you are made for. And it means that if there is no God, suffering is pointless. Pain is useless. But if there is a God, then everything has meaning. Everything. And it also means that everything that went wrong went wrong for a reason. This is the unraveling of the divine order. This is the fall. Next point. This is when the fall is when everything becomes disconnected from God. There's this like umbilical cord from us to God and our sin enters into this garden of perfection and it cuts the cord and we're disconnected from our life source. We're, we're wandering. And God's plan 
is that he would take the thing that we meant for evil and he would bring about good. What it means, actually, is that something greater than Eden awaits us. In fact, we start looking at Eden and we see this tree in the Garden of Eden that can ruin everything. And we say, what in the world is this tree that can ruin everything doing in this perfect place? And the answer is so that God can give you something greater than Eden. So God will take all the evil that's in your life and he will redeem it and restore it and give you something better than had you not done what you have done. It doesn't mean it's good what we did. It means we have the kind of God who will bring good out of the evil things that we do. The fall means that we get to experience God's costly love for us where he gives his life for us and we never would have been able to experience had the fall not happened. Gives us something better than Eden that can't be lost. And it means that in all of your suffering... There's a plan to give you peace. In all of your pain, there's a plan that will bring about healing. And with my son who has this autoimmune disease that we feel like has stolen him from us, it means that I can now trust that this is part of God's plan where we feel like we have lost him. It's actually the path through this that we discover who the real version of him is. You have no idea what you need before you in order to turn to God. And it probably involves some difficulty and some pain and some suffering. But God will use that for your good. The tree in the garden which we eat from means that we get to see what it's like for God to chase us down. The tree in the garden means that we get to experience what it is like to be lost, lonely, in a prison of our sin and our guilt and shame. But we get to experience Christ come and rip open the prison gates and come in, throw us over his shoulder and carry us out into freedom. That tree means we get to find that out that our God loves us more than he loves his own life. And had that not happened, and had we not experienced that, then we always, for all of eternity, would have been longing for a greater love. So he used our evil to bring about some good. And if you believe that, it will change how you live today. Paul, when he wrote this, was under house arrest imprisoned, chained to a Roman soldier. Yet, he was more free than any of us in this room. He was potentially awaiting his death, yet he was more alive than any of us in this room. And he was imprisoned unjustly, yet he was no victim, because he knew that God would bring about cosmic justice and restore all things and make all things right. And so it made him into the kind of man that can endure anything in this world because his feet were walking in another world. He had everything that we want and long for while we're here, almost all the way. And it made him brave. And his deep belief in this doctrine led to joyful doxology. Are you joyful? 
when you see what your future is as Paul is doing, you realize there is so much joy in that future that it's spilling over into today. Now, there's plenty in this world to be sad, depressed, and down about. You can fill up an ocean with it all. But there's infinitely more joy that you have access to in heaven right now. And so that means you have a choice. What do you want? Do you want sadness? Do you want depression? Do you want to be down? Or do you want joy? And you can make the decision because you have access to both. If you want to be the saddest person in this room, there's enough reasons in your life for you to be that. And if you want to be the most joyful person in this room, there's enough reasons in Christ for you to have it. So make your decision. What do you want? And that is the period we live in. We live in this period where there is a gathering, third point, and we're gathering at the base of the mountain, and all of those who want the eternal, eternal, unspeakable joy are gathered at the base of the mountain, the Mount of Joy, and ready to walk up this mountain to be with God forever. In the Old Testament, there's this phrase that keeps coming up about this water And the water seems to be migrating up the mountain. And water doesn't do that. And it's about people. It's about the gathering for this great migration that's going to happen where Christ has gathered together all of his people. And we make this journey and this pilgrimage up to the Mount of Joy and experience God as he's always been meant to be experienced. Okay, okay, okay. So how does Christ bring about this gathering? Well, that's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks. He's chosen you in him before the foundation of the world, which means before he hung a star in the sky, he hung your name upon his heart. And it means that though we have been orphaned, though we have run from a good father, and though we wanted nothing to do with him, what we find is that Christ has come as our older brother to chase us down so we might have a better father in heaven. In the same way where we have imprisoned ourselves in this sin, that, so those were four, verse five, and now we're at verse seven, imprisoned ourselves in this sin where we can't get out of, like, you know the thing that probably steals the most joy in my life is probably my own sin. I'm stuck in it. And yet we're told we have this Savior who comes and he breaks me free, he breaks you free. And he gathers me up, and he gathers us up at the base of this mountain, and he said, everything you want is up there. And I'm here to carry you up. And he's come to reconcile us to the Father and to the world that we've been made for. And so here's what happened. Our sin, while it cut us off, the umbilical cord was cut between us and God. Christ comes. And on the cross, he's cut off. The connection is broken between him and his father. And he cries out in that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here is the father's answer, silence. So that we, when we cry out to God, might hear, I'm here. I haven't left you. I haven't forsaken you. Come, be with me. Now, If all of this is true and you believe it, what's making you not go all in? What's holding you back from him? Because the time that we live in is a time of gathering, but it's also a time of testing. 
And the testing is asking you this question. Every time you're going through something in this life, the testing is asking you, what do you believe? Are you connected to the life source? Because if you are, you have life in the midst of this world that's trying to destroy you. You're connected in. There's a parable of the soil, and it talks about four different types of people who engage with this truth about Christ, and they all handle it different. Three of them lose it all, and one finds it. And the first one, here's the truth, and yet the evil one takes it away. Second one, here's the truth with joy, is excited about it. Yet, the difficulties in this world steal it. The third, hears of the truth, and then the cares of the world choke it out. And the fourth person, he passes the test, and he believes. And he, and he passes the test not because he's done something, but because he's believed something, and that is a very different thing. And even that belief, it's a gift from God that we see. And so now, because of it, it shows he is who he says he is. He believes what he says he believes because the test has come in. He's connected to the life source. If you don't dig into him, you decay and you die because he's a life source. You have to be united to Christ. He's the only solution. He's the source for renewal. Now, our last point. The comedian you know, he talked about merging into the creator. Um, while people are leaving atheism behind and becoming spiritual, the thinking is this. All of us one day, all of humanity, will be united back to God, our maker. And, and so the question becomes, well, why is the Bible making such a big deal about Christ? Why does the Bible have to make such a big deal about Christ? Why can't we just be good to get in? Why did the disciples all die so that we would be here believing this truth? Like, if it's not about him, why would they give their life? Why can't we just be good to get in? Why can't we look at what every other religion is doing and say, you know what, that's a path also. Let's just follow that path. And anybody can follow whatever path they want. As long as they know we're leading to something good, then that's a good thing. So let's keep following the path. But yet the Bible comes along and continues to be insistent upon Christ. Now, okay, so here's what I want you to think about. If it's all about being good, Adam and Eve lived a far better life than any of us could possibly live in this room. Yes, they lost it all, but they walked with God. They knew what it was like to live a holy life. They were far greater than we are, and yet they couldn't earn it back. That's alarming. And then we think about finding God. So Adam and Eve walked with God. They're exiled from the garden, and they want to get back in, but they can't find a way to get back in. Now, if these are people who have walked with God in the cool of the garden, yet now in this hot desert, they can't find their way back in. What makes us think we're going to be able to find our way? And then maybe we say, well, I don't know. I mean, do we really, I mean, can we really trust the Bible though? Like, can we really trust it, what it says? And, you know, that's a good question. Um, it's, the, in fact, a very similar question 
to the question that was asked of Eve before she ate the fruit. The question went like this. Did God really say? Did God really say to you that? Did God really say to you? Did God really say to you what's here? And if you try it out, try finding God on your own. You're going to find that you're unsuccessful. You're going to find that you need him to reveal himself to you. And if you're wondering about this and you say, no, God couldn't do this. Well, I just want you to know you have a better God than you think you do. He knows that we need him to reveal himself. And so he's given us this timeless, ancient, but modern text of words that have been written through his sinful people to us today that is somehow reliable and trustworthy because it says it's reliable and trustworthy and because it claims to be the very word of God. And as you read it and you say, well, it's claiming to be the word of God, then that means you have a faith decision to make. Will you trust it? And if you don't trust it, what will you trust? And is it as reliable as this? Test every single document that has come into the hands of humanity and is nothing compared to this and the reliability of this. And I can give you all of the proof, but the reality is what really needs to happen is you've got to open up and read it. And you've got to read it with a bunch of people who want to read it with you. And when you do, it comes alive. And when you open this book and the leaves of the pages are wrestling around, you start reading things about your sin. It's quite alarming, actually. And then the intensity of it all grows and you think, oh my gosh, I'm doomed. And then you come to the page about the cross and you say, that's it. This is the way. In fact, now I can't see how there would be any other way. The cross is the doorway that opens everything up to the world that I've been longing for. And when you see that, you see that the cross is costly. And you know inherently deep down that love is costly. I know that you know this because if you go to a wedding, I see it happen to people all the time. The vows start being said. And, and the vows go something like this. I don't know what's before us. I don't know the suffering and I don't know the pain and I don't know the loss. I don't know what it is, but I know that I'm not leaving. I'm with you to the end. And whenever I hear the vows and I'm looking out at people, I mean, you just like the tears are coming down and then people are like wrapping their arms around the one that they love and they're like, oh yes, this is, this is why I'm doing, this is why I love. And it stirs up something in people. Now, if you went to a wedding and the vows went something like this, I promise I will be here until life gets hard. And I promise I will be here until someone better comes along. You're going to be listening to that and you're going to say, what am I here for? This is no wedding. I don't want to go to the after party. I don't want to dance to this. I've been tricked. I've been duped into something. Because you know deep down that love is costly. And God made some vows to you. And he didn't say... I don't know what stands before us. 
I don't know what pain and suffering is to come. He said, I know what is to come. I know the pain. I know the suffering. I know the loss that stands before us. And I know the love that I have for you is going to cost me everything. But you know what? He still said, I do. And his words, I do, to you and to me, led him straight up to that cross. And he hung there. And he died. And that's his love. And you, you can pick something else. Pick whatever else you want. It's not going to give you that kind of love. Nothing else in this world offers that kind of love for God to have that love for you. And nothing else gives you a more glorious future than this. Is this a difficult doctrine that Christ is the only way? Yes, absolutely. But if you lose it, you lose the love that God has for you. You've picked something less. You've picked something less eternal. You've picked something that's less loving, that makes you less alive. His love makes you alive. And for all of eternity, if you got something, if you lived on but you didn't have that love, you would always know there's something missing. Yet Christianity offers you a God who loves you more than he loves his own life. You've got to go to him. I want to finish the C.S. Lewis quote. I want to read the whole thing in its entirety. He says, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, but it is immortals whom you joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. My plea to you is that you would go all in with the one who went all in with you. He knew what he was doing when he went all in. And he shows this when he came into the world in the form of a little tiny baby infant, vulnerable, into the arms of the ones who ruined everything. And yet he placed his son here in our arms, our sinful hands, our rebellious hands. He placed his son here, and we killed him. And because of his obedience to the Father, the Father says, you know, we can imagine this. The Father says, I'll give you everything you want. And the Son says, you know what I want. We planned this from the fullness of time. I want them. And we look on and we say, wait, you want us after all that we have done to you? And he says, yes, I said I do. And I meant it. And I keep every promise that I make. And then he says, if you think this is good, 
The best is yet to come. This is only the beginning. This is only the kernel of resurrection life. You will one day be walking into everlasting splendor, everlasting joy, everlasting peace, and it's what awaits you. So just stop waiting and go to him. Let's pray. Father, in your love, you made us yours. In your love, you sent your son. Jesus, in your love, you gave your life and counted our lives as more important than your own. In our rebellion, you returned it with grace. In our hatred of you, you returned it with love. So what else is there left for us to do, God, but to worship you? Help us believe that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's get to some questions. If, so you're saying we are better off because the fall happened. If so, how can that be? Um, the, a, a quick answer to that is the disciples are looking at the cross, And Jesus says, before he goes to the cross, it's better for me to leave you. Or no, he says that after the cross. I'm getting confused here. Either way, look, you're looking at, the disciples are looking at the cross. And they're thinking this is the worst thing that's ever happened. But yet it was the best thing that's ever happened. There are things that, cosmic things that have happened. Where we have lost God and lost the world we're made for. And we say, how could any good come out of this? And God's answer is through the cross to the resurrection. And meaning it's better because of this. Eden was not perfect. It was good. Good, the the Hebrew word for good means it had all the potential to reach perfection, but not yet perfect. It required us partnering with God, yet we failed in what we needed to do and partner with God and make Eden cover all the earth. So in other words, it could always have been lost. It was always in jeopardy. But because we messed up and Christ died and rose, he secured a future for us that can't be lost. So it's even better than Eden. There you go. Do you think you can feel God's joy but still feel depressed? Absolutely. In fact, you might feel more sorrow and more joy all at the same time. You think about it like this. There's a world we are made for. And when you come alive to knowing that that world is there, you long for it more. It's like like when you're, you're not hungry, but then you take a bite of food and all of a sudden it's like, I've never been this hungry before in my life. It's because you awakened something in you. There was a craving that you were suppressing, but all of a sudden it awakened. And so what happens when you become a Christian is the craving for the world that you were made for has been awakened in you. And you say, I want to be in this place even more than I did before. And so there's a sorrow that gets stirred up. But also there's a joy that says, Enduring this sorrow is worth it because I know what is to come. And because I know it's there for me, I can have a joy now at the same time. So you get more of both in a way when you become a Christian. It's showing you you're more alive. It's showing you you're aware of what's happening in this world. Because you want to numb yourself to it all because it's too painful. But if this is not going to be your end home, then you can actually see what's happening here. And be awakened to, man, this is not good. But something good is to come.
So yes, it's, um, there's a song, oh, let's see if I can remember the lyrics. It goes, there's a, a sickness that's better than health. And what the song means by that, it's capturing this idea that there's a sickness that we enter into when we come alive. And the sickness is a pain that makes us know that this world is in our home and we've got to endure it. But soon and very soon, all things will be made right. Oh, that's a good question. That I don't know if I know the answer to that. Skip. <laughs> Is suffering part of God's plan, or does suffering happen in spite of God's plan? Okay, there's a, a few ways to answer this. So, one, God's plan is for our good. So, in one sense, the tree is not part of the plan. But the tree, in a way, is also the path to love. It's a path to show us, like, hey, you pick God. Choose God. Oh, we didn't do it. We keep not picking it. And then God says, yay, now I get to show you what real love is. But it was always his plan. It's like, uh, uh, how, do, how do we do this? So it's this, it's this tension of the sovereignty of God. He's in control of everything. And human responsibility. Um, it's all, like, take responsibility of this. So there's a story um, when Paul, who's the writer of Ephesians, he's, he, he's on this ship, and he's on the ship as a prisoner. And while he's on the ship, they go through the storm. And he, and he has this uh, revelation from God that everyone's going to live, so just relax. So, okay, if God says this is what's going to happen, it's what's going to happen. But then... The sailors, as they're getting closer to somewhere, the sailors are about to jump off the ship. And then he says, if the sailors jump off the ship, we're all going to die. So God has just told him, we're going to live. But then he says, but, if God, but God has also told me, if we get off the ship, we're going to die. You get off the ship, we're going to die. In other words, um, God's plan involves your responsibility. However, God will fulfill his plan. So be responsible to what God has called you to. You get it? Me neither. Um, so, yes, suffering is part of God's plan, but also it's not what he desires, but at the same time he desires to show his love. So there's a mystery in that, and you just have to be okay with the mystery because there's going to be some things that you don't understand. Because we're talking about the mind of God here. So sometimes if you read the Bible and you're like, I don't get this, there's some things you're not supposed to get because if you got it, then you would have the mind of God, but God is not wanting you to have the mind, his own mind because it, he's showing you how great he is. All right, so there we go. Let's pray, um, and then we'll sing. Father, in your goodness, you have given us a mystery. And that mystery remains, means that there are wonders that still remain to be discovered about you. And so you are still our great adventure. You are still our great prize. And we will continue to explore your wonders for all of eternity. So give us joy in that truth. And when we feel sorrow, let it be because we have set our eyes upon what is to come. And we crave it even more. And the craving hurts a bit, 
but we would never trade it because of what we receive on the other side of all of this. But even now, we receive it in part, in glimmers, in shadows, and that is enough. So we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at The Grove Church Official and check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.